0: Hello, I'm Julian Baggini and welcome to the first in a new series of microphilosophy podcasts looking at how different philosophical traditions around the world shape the way we think. The hope is that by understanding these ideas a little better, we can in turn understand and learn from each other a little better too. These podcasts are made in conjunction with the Berggruen Institute's Philosophy and Culture Centre, the goal of which is to develop fresh ideas through comparative and interdisciplinary work and relate these insights to the pressing issues of our day. The first three podcasts are conversations with participants in one of the center's workshops in Stanford, California, about different conceptions of self. We're going to start in this one by looking at the various ways in which the self is not assumed to be a given, but it's something we need to work on to cultivate and to develop. Joining me in the discussion are Akhil Bilgrami, Sidney Morgan Besser, Professor of Philosophy at Columbia University and author of Secularism, Identity and Enchantment. Thomas Kasulis, Professor of Comparative Studies Emeritus at Ohio State University and author of Zen Action, Zen Person. And Edward Slingland, Professor of Asian Studies at the University of British Columbia and the author of Trying Not to Try, The Art and Science of Spontaneity. I began by asking Slingland about the Chinese idea of wu wei.
1: Wu wei is a goal toward which self cultivation is aiming. It's translated sometimes as no doing. I think effortless action is a better translation. So it's a state where your behavior flows spontaneously and easily. Without a sense of effort, you lose a sense of yourself as an agent. So this is the goal for a certain group of early Chinese thinkers, this is the goal of self-cultivation. So the idea is not to teach people abstract principles that they should consciously consult when they're making decisions. It's to get them to develop automatic dispositions or habits that will kick in automatically when the appropriate situation presents itself.
0: And and there's a paradox there because the ultimate goal is a kind of effortless action, but it takes a heck of a lot of effort to get to it. Yes, Yes.
1: and if you're trying, it's a sign you're not there yet. But how do you get someone to try not to try? It's the central paradox at the heart of all of these early forms of thought.
0: That's kind of interesting in in many ways. Um, One is the importance of really working towards certain goals. Tom Kassoulis or Akil Grami, in, in the traditions that you're most familiar with, is that a, a recurrent theme? Are people expected to, from a young age, uh, work hard to fashion themselves?
2: Yes, uh, well, in the case of Japan, and this is partly inheritance from China as well, the idea of education is something that is a kind of embodied practice of the tradition. People always speculated on whether Japan in in the current era would completely eliminate the Chinese characters. But that would mean that they would then just type everything. And the discipline of writing with the brush and making the characters and so forth is something that from a very early age is used to give you a sense of being very careful about the particular attention to the particular and and the sense of what I am doing is related to a very long-standing tradition. So in that sense it's cultivated from a very early age.
0: Yes, I mean that sense of things standing in the tradition and the importance of the tradition. I mean obviously I come from Britain and people admire tradition in some ways, but is it true or is it some kind of cultural stereotype that tradition is more important in
3: say either Japan or China or, or India for that matter? Well, you know, it's very different in different classes. I think in metropolitan upper-middle-class upper communities in India there's quite a lot of self-fashioning, opportunity for self-fashioning amongst the young and the parents just simply allow that, in fact encourage it to some extent, but there's almost none of it in traditional Indian society. And uh, it's not just a matter of class, of course, it's, it's metropolitan uh, well-off people who do it, not in the, in the country's habit, particularly. And a lot of that is changing. There's so much urbanization and so on. So, so a lot of changes and transformations in society in, in through political economy have made a lot of difference to... Which must be true surely of China too
0: right? yeah. well, again that's an interesting point because I mean uh, part of the danger when people do this sort of cross-cultural analysis is that they uh, they identify something which is true of a culture Yeah, the Japanese are like this, the Chinese are like that, but all, all over the world places are changing so to what extent do these ideals actually still have a grip? I mean in Japan, for example, isn't there an issue here with young people? They're not being
2: prepared to engage in that really long kind of period of apprenticeship. Oh, that's, that's exactly right. And it's a, a matter of great concern. The, o- the only point that I would add to that is I've been studying Japan now for, for 45 years uh, and about every 10 years, there is the idea that well the youth is gone They're, everything's <laughs> yeah. gone traditions going down the toilet. Mm. That's so what forth. Confucius said, yeah. right? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. That's right. Yeah, you know, this People is a, I, Plato, and you know, you know, this is a very common idea. And, and what happens, at least in the Japan's case, is that when the youth ends up. Getting into corporate Japan getting a career and so forth then a lot of the traditional values how you relate to people What's expected of you and so forth? Uh, suddenly becomes immediately relevant because this is the way to get along in your new career and to be able to Survive and suddenly all these traditional things start becoming second nature to them all over again What one quick point one thing to always remember is that tradition is not in the past tradition is how the present looks at the past right, right? and so To contrast it with the U.S. situation uh, in Japan is what I find really fascinating, because Japan has its narrative of, we are all one people, we're homogeneous, and it's exactly the opposite in the United States. So Japan could say, this is what our ancestors have done all along. In the United States, you say that, yeah, but my my particular ancestors were from Lithuania just two generations ago, others are from Italy, others are from England, others are from China, others are from Africa someplace. when they say that there are traditions, well, what's an American tradition? Tradition has to take on a different flavoring in a context like that. And I think it's a, a loyalty towards certain principles, and that's what unifies people, because they don't have an ethnic past that they share. Yeah,
0: I mean, Ed Slingling, this idea of is it something that you can still identify and see at work in Chinese society? Or is it just something of historical interest?
1: Yeah, it- it? Contemporary Chinese society almost seems about as far from Uwe as you can imagine. You go to a major Chinese city and they're just so hyper-frenetic and cram schools and trying and working and striving. So it's it's hard to say the extent to which it's really survived as an ideal in, in, in modern society. And Particularly mainland China is a tricky case because there's been this rupture. In China, Japan, you have arguably a little more continuity mm-hmm. culturally, traditionally. Um, mainland China with the the communist revolution and the cultural revolution, there was a really self-conscious attempt to break with tradition. And that makes it a different case. And what's interesting now is this, what seems to be an attempt to recover tradition. And again, a tradition very much told from the present. Mm -hmm. You know, so you want to revive the (laughs) Confucianism, (laughs) but a Confucianism that also really helps preserve a harmonious society, which as some people talk about ironically, being harmonized is, can sometimes mean being suppressed. There's a manufacturing almost of tradition that's going on in mainland China right now where they're trying to recover some of these ideals, early Confucian ideals, and that would include mm. certain principles that, that hover around the ideal of Wu Wei. It's not of just historical entrance, but there's a it's debatable the extent to which it's still an ideal in contemporary mm. China.
0: I mean it's interesting that in in Britain there's been a real revival of interest and kind of concern in the transmission of, you know, virtue and character, a sense that this isn't happening. And they're trying to introduce things like programmes in schools to teach people to be of good character. Now, akil Gagrami, the, the workshop we've been attending here, you actually gave an example of a, a form of, if you like... Transmission of values, which was actually nothing to do with that kind of pedagogical teaching, and using the example of Gandhi. Can you say a little bit about that?
3: So, Gandhi had this very self consciously articulated idea that the sort of philosophical uh, mentality that gives rise to, to violence is that one's moral judgments or moral stances, if they get articulated in principles and imperatives Uh, I mean, he never read Kant, but this is obviously his understanding of Western ways of thinking that if they get articulated in principles and imperatives, then when people fall afoul of those principles and imperatives, there is a tendency to see it in fact, it's compulsory to see it as transgressive in some way and therefore the justified object of criticism and his Anxiety was that when you had these very critical attitudes generated by this ethical conception, then criticism led to contempt, which led to the possibilities of violence. So his idea was to not allow one's moral stances to get universalized into principles, to generate imperatives, but rather to see Everything is a matter of conscience, not at all as a matter of principles. One's moral judgments and stances came from individual conscience. And when one acted on one's conscience, one was basically setting an example but not generating a principle. Mm. And so if one's example failed to set, that's just a different phenomenon than transgression. And part of the moral psychology that it would generate is one of disappointment, but not criticism. And much of the disappointment would be with oneself for it not having set, you know, the example having set. So, so he wanted to, to shift the mentality in, of moral psychology to grounds that weren't, as it were, paler shades of violence.
0: Was that a radical view, or is there a sense in which it, it, we can understand why it emerged
3: in India rather than, say, you know... Uh, well, Europe what is sort of radical, I mean, you know, Erasmus had the idea of ex- exemplarity and other antecedents too, but what was radical was that he made it an explicit criticism of Western ways of thinking about morals. may have been pregnant with Erasmus, but Erasmus didn't develop it theoretically mm.
0: But being critical of Western values would seem to imply that he was offering something which people would recognise as being non-Western or Indian, is not it? Right, true? so
3: it's the idea of exempl- exemplarity he just thought was just very much part of Indian culture. It comes from a kind of patriarchal family idea where the father is an exemplary figure and he doesn't need to set up principles, just, you know, he's an example, sets so an example. I mean, Tom Casillas, in, in, in Japan, the uh, idea of the sort of training
0: of the self... I mean, a lot of the examples we think of, they seem to involve a very, sort of, what seems like a very small, sometimes even trivial, Mm. practice. Uh, There's a very interesting film, Ajiro Dreams of Sushi, which Mm -hmm. is about a sushi master, Mm -hmm. and you've heard how people spent, like, about three years just making that one egg that's dish, right. and so they get it right. right. Now, that just seems very strange to people who are not
2: part of the culture, but what's going on? How can we understand the okay. sense of that? That's a, that's a very good question. I think it is often misunderstood in the West. It's usually called minimalism in the West, and, and you sort of exclude everything extraneous and so forth. But actually, I think the more fundamental idea that this draws on in a Japanese uh, spiritual and intellectual tradition it has to do with the relation of whole and part. And the assumption is is what I call the, the, the holographic relation where the whole is actually inscribed in each part. And the way to think of that, for example, is uh, when I brushed my hair this morning I lost part of myself. Now that wasn't a great Buddhist phenomenon, that was some of my hair ended up in my comb mm-hmm. and it looked like I lost part of me. However, in another sense, if that same hair shows up at a crime scene, then suddenly they look at that hair ever more closely zoom in rather than zoom out on it not try to say oh let's try to find another of his hairs they've got all they need in the one little part because if you study that you have the dna for the whole body and so therefore the idea in the japanese sense if you focus deeply enough on the particular you end up actually discovering the relation of the whole and so to know the whole you don't stand back you zoom in and, and that's a very important part of their whole way of thinking. It, 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 so, like, everything we discover is not a little tile that fits into some mosaic. It's more like a piece of a jigsaw puzzle that tells you something about where the next piece is, and the next piece, and the next piece. And you build a whole lot of that. And so the, the, the haiku, which people yes. know as a piece of Japanese poetry, that's uh, only, what, 17 syllables? 17 syllables, yes. <laughs> but... Yeah, it, well, <laughs> early Japanese poetry had... What they call linked verse, people added, added, they could be hundreds of lines long, then they went down to a seven line verse, and then finally, a three line seventeen syllable verse. And a Japanese haiku poet would say, "I left nothing out that was in the longer poems. Yeah. But what I do intend, and this is a haiku poets speak of this all the time, that the haiku poem is not complete until the reader, Completes it. The reader has to look at the part and see the whole. The reader has to do that work. And what what the artist does is try to give that little point uh, that that sort of triggers that ability to see the whole. But you have to do the work.
0: It's linked to that idea that um, the whole is in a sense uh, manifest fully in the part. It, it also seems to link with ideas of you know, everything sort of being connected, everything being one in an important way. Is that a, an idea which is important more broadly in East Asia? Or is it? Quirky Japanese.
1: I can't think of an idea like that of the pre-Buddhist tradition mm. in China. I don't know. Can you think of anything classical no, pre? No. So things really change when around the beginning of the Common Era when Buddhism comes in and introduces new metaphysics and ideas about Buddha nature being present in all things. But in the pre the pre-Buddhist tradition, I can't think of any idea like no, that.
2: I, I think you're right, and in fact. It comes in through the Indian Buddhist, the Saka Sutra, sort of the epitome of it, uh, where there's this Sanskrit text from India that says every phenomenon ultimately is a reflection of all the other Mm. phenomena. In India, it had a kind of nice philosophical run, but it didn't have the impact and the depth of of, of taking that in practical terms that that it's into China and then to Japan. Well, I suppose what I'm really
0: asking here is that there is this sort of idea that people have that all over the the East, as it is called in broad-brush terms, there is much more a sense of the fundamental unity of all things, if you like, that there isn't that sort of breaking down of things into what are perhaps stereotypically called dichotomous um, categories. Is that just some kind of uh, Western misconception, or is there something to that?
1: I think it's part of the uh, this myth about the East. So there's there's kernels of truth, so there are these Buddhist ideas that are very much like this, but you also find ideas like this in ancient Greeks and parts of Western thought. So there's an extent to which, I, in my more recent work, I've been fighting against what I see as this myth of holism in East Asia that's part of a broader kind of Orientalism where the East or China... As, a, as seen as monolithic and stands in for everything that we wish we did here in the West, but <laughs> we don't. You know, when you see this, it goes. The tradition goes back to people like Voltaire and Leibniz, who, you know, looked at this early reports from the Jesuits were coming in about Confucianism and about Chinese thought, and they said, Oh, they that's they're, they have it right. And this is why Descartes, my enemies here, are wrong. Because, you know, not only have I been arguing this, but the Chinese already thought that, and they're an ancient civilization, and so people have been saying this for thousands of years, great culture. And so people use China also as a, mm. as a place where they find their own counter-normative ideas, ideals that they don't think are being recognized by their culture, mm. and then, I think, project them
3: to a certain extent onto well, That's them. a two-way process, though, isn't it? I in a lot of my writing I try to uncover the affinities between Gandhi and, and radical dissent in the 17th century in Europe, in England. So diggers and levelers and uh, well diggers especially. And you know that's it's part of trying to come up with a political framework in which to think against the current forms of globalization and I think that's a very very rich pos- set of possibilities uh, to combine tradition and Mm dissent, you know, because after all, dissent lasts out, but as it is, it shouldn't be written out of history, you know, because after all, what the dissenters said can have lots of possibilities for Mm -hmm. politics today. Um, Uh, The the final thing I just wanted to to talk about with you is, it it did strike me over
0: the couple of days we've been here, that there have been certain recurrent ideas, and, and one is that, generally speaking, as a trend... In, in East Asia in particular, I don't know how true this is of India, there is, there is a sense in which the self is conceived as, yeah, in some sense being looser, less real, whatever you want to call it, than in the individualistic West where the self is absolute and sovereign. So on the one hand there's less emphasis on the self, but curiously on the other hand there does seem to be, from what various people have said, a lot of emphasis on the need to cultivate the self, to build character and be the self. Whereas in the West, of course, there's this great individualism, but people don't
2: think the self is something that really needs needs much work on it. There's a funny... It, and it occurs in the East Asian languages as well as in English. The word self is ambiguous. If I say uh, the vehicle is self-propelled, now that doesn't mean that there's a self in there propelling into things, it means it's auto-propelled, mm. right? It, it is propelled by itself. And part of the idea of cultivating the self in the at least the Japanese tradition and probably the Chinese tradition too, is in a sense to actually make the self more natural, spontaneous, in a sense of reflecting responsively the situation in which one finds oneself. So uh, cultivating the self is sort of, we could almost say cultivating the auto Mm. aspect, you know, in some way. That it's not a matter of we are focusing on something that is the self that we are cultivating, but rather we're cultivating the idea so that things happen of themselves, and I am part of this process, and I creatively interact with it, and and so forth. So it's the ambiguity can be worked in English as well. Is what, I, what I'm trying to point out here. I always encourage my students to sort of think about every time you see self in one of these Buddhist terms. Uh, Change it to auto, and then see if uh, the meaning starts becoming clearer and doesn't seem so uh, paradoxical.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, I think it can be exaggerated the extent to which there's no individuality or sense of individuality in the, in the right. East. There clearly is, they're aware that they have bodies, and they <laughs> separate right. from other people, and right. if they die, and right. people have different personalities. Um, but the kernel of truth there is that who you are as a self is constituted by your social roles in a much stronger sense than, let's say, in modern North America or maybe Northern Europe. And again, we don't want to uh, centralize the West too much. Medieval right. Europe <laughs> didn't have a super robust uh, <laughs> no sense of the set of no family names, right? right. So um, no. it's, it's, it varies, but there is something that you don't find in, in East Asian traditions that uh, did arise in the West is kind of uh, authentic self, the idea that you were really a unique individual, and so your goal in life should be this kind of radical self-making, or this kind of Nietzschean, you know, Übermensch who's going to just make value out of nothing. That would be a weird idea in a Confucian context, or even, I think, in a Taoist context. Right.
3: Who you are is partly who you are in relationship to your society or to nature. But that's, that's really partly why I think notions of identity really only... Certainly, in India, it only really arise when there is some form of dislocation. Mm-hmm. Migration mm-hmm. is, a, of course, a very standard form of dislocation. So, for instance, nobody thinks I am a Hindu growing up in a village, and you know, just you just doesn't occur to one. Yeah. It's only when you you land up in a city and you are sort of dislocated and dislocated psychologically too, you begin to say, "Who am I?" You know, mm-hmm. and what, what, where do I fit in? And, and what is really very interesting is that. Every major riot, in fact I would think every major and probably most minor riots, if not all, between Hindus and Muslims have happened in urban areas.
0: There will be more global perspectives on the self in the next two podcasts. To keep up to date, subscribe to the Microphilosophy iTunes feed or follow me on Twitter at Microphilosophy. And do check out the work of the Berggruen Institute's Philosophy and Culture Centre at philosophyandculture.bergruen.org. Until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye.